0: As a family, one of the things that we like to do is uh, playing games. Uh, Some of the the games we like, uh, telephone. You ever played telephone? Sit around the table and everybody, you share a, a message and speak it into somebody's ear, and then they hear what you've communicated, and then they turn and share it to the next person. And hopefully what ends up happening when you get all the way around is that what you've communicated has been received and understood and passed on correctly. Another kind of twist on that game is a game that we call Telephone Pictionary. Some people might call it Telestrations, where everybody starts off writing a statement down on a piece of paper, like we decorated a Christmas tree. Uh, Everybody else writes something different, and then when you say go, you pass your paper to the person on your left. And when they get what's written down, they have to on another piece of paper draw a picture of what you wrote. And then when it's time to pass, you then pass your pictures. And now everybody has a picture. And then you write a statement to describe that picture. And it goes all around. Hopefully that through your writing and your drawing, communication has happened and understanding has occurred. Uh, Sometimes we play charades. Similar things going on, except instead of communicating through speaking or writing or drawing, you're acting and doing motions. And so through your actions, Hopefully you're communicating in a way that people understand, they guess rightly what you're trying to communicate so that you win the game. Uh, There's another game that we have that's called concept, and instead of speaking or writing or drawing or acting, there's a lot of symbols and signs on a board, and you're marking and designating which symbols and signs are on the board to hopefully communicate through Symbols and signs, the message you're getting across so that people will understand it, and the message will come across and you will get points. It's amazing, though, that we have all of these ways to communicate. Writing, speaking, actions, drawing, signs and symbols. But how many times we fail to understand what people are communicating We miscommunicate with one another. We don't understand each other. We fail to uh, listen and understand when God seeks to speak and communicate to us. And he uses a variety of those means as well. Words, writing, actions, signs and symbols. We're in the book of 1 Samuel. The book of 1 Samuel has been given to God's people to show us that we need a king who is obedient and faithful to God and his covenant. But what we've seen so far in the book of 1 Samuel is that prior to this king coming, God's people need to be prepared for the coming of this king one of the ways that God has sought to prepare His people is through communication, communicating to them. This morning, we want to look in chapter 4 of the book of 1 Samuel to see how, through the ways that God is communicating to us in this passage and the struggles for other people to understand and communicate rightly in this passage, the importance and the necessity of God's people to be prepared for the coming of the King. So, if you would look with me in chapter four of the book of First Samuel, uh, we're going to look at the first, the second half of verse four. Because remember, we finished up last time with the first half, and we're going to go all the way down through the end of uh, of chapter four in uh, verse twenty-two. Uh, if you're following along in one of the black Bibles there in your seats. This is on page 228, so if you would, please follow along with me in your copy of God's Word. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has Yahweh defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of Yahweh here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of Yahweh of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of Yahweh had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid, and they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now, Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth, And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed down and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Let's pray. Father, you are the great communicator. You've revealed yourself in your creation. You have especially and particularly revealed yourself in your word. And we pray that you would do that this morning. Holy Spirit, we know that without your work, we will understand nothing. I will communicate nothing. We pray that what is proclaimed today is for your glory and your honor. In Christ's name, amen. So what we want to look at in this chapter are three things that are communicating. We want to see how and what, what it is, what does the ark communicate? Uh, what do the people communicate? And then we want to look at what does the defeat of the people communicate? So first, let's look at the ark. What does the ark communicate in this passage? Uh, for, in, in order for us to understand this passage, we must understand what this ark is all about. I mean, did you did you notice how many times the ark is mentioned? It's as if the ark is a character in this passage. Verse three, verse four, verse five, verse six, verse eleven, verse thirteen, verse seventeen, verse eighteen, verse nineteen, verse twenty-one, verse twenty-two. Ark, 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 ark. What is the ark all about? What does it mean? What is it? What is it communicating? those of you who are unfamiliar, the ark is speaking of this box, this gold-covered box that had cherubim or these winged creatures on top facing one another that sat in the Holy of Holies, the most holy place within the tabernacle and later in the the temple. In order for us to understand what it is that the ark is communicating, I think it would actually be helpful if we look at verse 4. Let's look at what they called the Ark, and how does that help us understand what it is that the Ark is communicating. Notice this long title that they they give it and how they refer to it. Uh, So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh of Hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. So let's break that up. First, let's look at the first part of it, the Ark of the Covenant ark of the covenant what does it communicate well it has something to do with the covenant that god has made with his people israel has a unique relationship with god out of all the peoples of the earth he has called this people into a covenant relationship with him the ark communicates that israel has a unique relationship Part of that relationship uh, focuses on the blessings and provision of God. Uh, In the ark was placed a jar of manna. Manna, the way that God provided and cared for the people of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness, as they moved forward to the place that he would give them, to the promised land. Uh, The the, the ark also, the ark of the, the covenant, inside was placed the Ten Commandments that reminded the people that this covenant relationship that you have with God comes with great blessing, great provision. But there's also obligations that you have as the people of God to follow this covenant, to respond in faithfulness and holiness and trust of this God who has saved and redeemed you and brought you into this relationship. But undergirding it all, The Ark of the Covenant highlights and underscores the grace and mercy of God because these cherubim on top of the Ark is also referred to as the mercy seat. The mercy seat. Once a year, the high priest was able to go in to the Holy of Holies where the Ark resided and there put blood The provision of God to atone by His mercy and His grace for the sin of the people. Not because of their works or their actions, but because of His grace and His mercy. The Ark of the Covenant proclaims and speaks all of these things to the people of God. But who? Who is this God? Well, He's Yahweh of hosts. The Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh of hosts. Remember, we encountered that Terminology, that title of God earlier in the book when Hannah was praying to God. We said that's the first time this comes up in the Scriptures and that title, that terminology is proclaiming to us the power, the authority, the dominion of our God. Yahweh of hosts, the one who is the ruler over all things in heaven. And also we would understand it all things on earth. The heavenly host, the stars, he rules over it all because he created and made it. Yahweh of hosts, the one who rules and controls and is the powerful one who rules over the the angel and heavenly armies that are at his command and do his work. And he is Yahweh of hosts who rules over and is God over the host of Israel. He is the king and ruler of this people that he has saved and that he has created. But we notice something else about this God who rules and reigns over all things, this covenant God, the ark of the covenant of Yahweh, of host who is enthroned on the cherubim. Remember what I told you was on top of this golden box? was the cherubim. If he's enthroned on the cherubim, then that means that this ark, as the scriptures also call it, is his footstool. He rules, and he's enthroned in the midst of his people. This great and powerful covenant God has said that I am going to dwell and live in your midst, Israel. Israel. Out of all of the nations and the earth, in a special way, I am coming to dwell and live and abide with you. What a message. Hopefully you're seeing some, some similarities. That the ark is proclaiming the gospel in the Old Testament of a God who saves and redeems a people for himself, a God who rules and reigns over all things, a God who provides mercy and grace to deal with your sin so that you can abide and dwell and live with him. The message of the ark, what the ark is communicating, is fulfilled, surpassed by Jesus. God who takes on flesh. God who enters into this world to dwell and live with his people. Not in a box, but in a body. Whose mercy is demonstrated by not the blood of bulls and goats dealing with our sin, but the blood of God in the flesh himself, who deals completely with the sins of his people. But who also calls us to holiness, to faithfulness, to live and walk and abide with him. Remember, isn't that what our baptism proclaims to us? As you are marked as a part of God's people, that it obligates us to walk in faithfulness. We understand the great privilege and provision and blessing that our God has given us as being a part of his covenant people, but also recognizing we are called to live a holy life, to demonstrate His glory and His goodness. We continue to experience His provision, which we will do this morning at the Lord's Supper. As we come and eat in the presence of our God. The ark is communicating in this passage. And we, more even more so than Israel, should understand this message that is being communicated even more powerfully to us. But there's other communication that's going on in this passage. The people, the people of Israel are also communicating, and it becomes clear that they do not understand the message of the ark. Look in verse 3. And when the elders of the people came to the camp, the elders said, Why has Yahweh defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of Yahweh here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Here they've experienced this defeat. Four thousand of them have been uh, beaten. But what we see and notice That the people are communicating through their action and their response here is that the holiness of God, their covenant faithfulness, their holiness is not important to them. They are disregarding God's word, they are disregarding the call that the covenant has upon their lives. How do we see that here? Well, they ask the right question. Why has God defeated us? But do you notice? They don't seek out the answer. They don't listen to the word of God given to them in the covenant to show them and remind them that when you go into the promised land, if you live unfaithfully before me, if you pursue false gods, If you don't deal with your sin appropriately and rely on the provision that I've given you, if you chase after the gods of the other nations, I will defeat you before them. But Israel here is not concerned about that. They're content just to live their life the way they want to live and come to God only when they need Him. Only when they think Through their actions, they can manipulate him to get him to do what they want him to do. Again, another misunderstanding of the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh of hosts. Who is the ruler? Who is the king? He doesn't serve us, we serve him. But do you notice what they're trying to do? They don't respond in repentance, they don't respond to the message of the prophets. And what the Scriptures tell them to repent and bring your sin before the Lord, they say, let's bring the ark into our midst. If we bring the ark into our midst and the way we do this, there's no way God's going to let His name be shamed before the nations. We'll do this religious act and then He will have to deliver us before the Philistines. But look at the response and the result of that they bring the ark into their midst and then down in verse 5 and or down in verse uh 10 we see the result so the philistines fought and israel was defeated they fled every man to his home and there was a great slaughter it didn't work like they thought it was going to work They thought we can use these signs, these seals, these symbols that God has given us of his presence among us and through our religious actions and our work get him to do what we want him to do regardless of how we're living our lives. We'll live in sin and unrighteousness and then just call in God to save us at the end. But also recognize that what they communicate with their actions is that they don't see and recognize God as being holy, worthy of their worship, worthy of their affections, worthy of them communicating to the nations the glory and honor of this unique God. How do we know that? Do Do you recognize what the Philistines thought was going on? when Israel was screaming and shouting and when they brought the Ark of the Covenant in? Uh, they, they say in verse 7, A God is coming to the camp. Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. On that part, they're right. A God coming to dwell and live amongst His people? Really and truly? That is amazing. You're right on that part, Philistines. But notice where they get it wrong. Who can deliver us in the power of these mighty gods. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. In the wilderness? It happened in Egypt. That's where God worked the mighty plagues. It seems that the Philistines have the history of Israel wrong. And I also think that what who delivered Israel was multiple gods. Actually, if we look in Psalm 78 and Jeremiah 7, it recounts and looks back on this situation. We realize that, the, that Israel was living in a way to where they were pursuing and worshiping and chasing after other gods. From the Philistine's perspective, when they look on the way that Israel is living out their covenant life, the message that is being communicated to the nations by the way that Israel is living is that there is not one true God. That he does not live holy and righteous and call his people to live that way. But there are multiple gods and they completely botch and misunderstand his great acts of redemption and work in the world. Israel has completely missed the message of the Ark of the Covenant. They've completely missed who their God is and who he has called them to be. What about us? Do you see any of Israel's Heart and their response in your own life? Are you content just to bear the name Christian outwardly? To profess with your mouth, I follow Jesus. But to live your life in a way that completely denies the holiness and the righteousness of your God, of the goodness and grace and mercy that he has extended to you, To bear outwardly on your head and on your shoulders the waters of baptism that marked you as being a part of God's people that says when you look and hope and trust in Jesus, you are cleansed and forgiven. I'm marking you as my holy and sent out ones that we go out and live a life of unrighteousness, of wickedness, discounting all of the privilege that God has given us and all the obligations that are ours to follow, to live for His glory in the world. Do we not do that all the time? Do we not also live in in such a way that when we do come to God, it's only to get what we can from Him? The only times that we communicate and come to God in prayer or seek Him is when things get tough and difficult. Oh man, I got a test coming up on Friday. I haven't really been living for God great this week. I'm fast for the past two weeks. I haven't been praying to Him a whole lot except when before I had the last test. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start living. I'm going to get my life in straight now. I got Wednesday to Friday. Am I going to pray and seek Him? And then maybe I'll do good on the test. Or maybe you begin to think, as you look at your life, you're, you're, you're looking and you're, and you're seeing, man, stuff in my business has not been going well. In my other relationships, I know I haven't been living for, for God, right? But I, I can't stand this anymore. So I'm just going to get my life in order and I'm going to start living in a way that maybe then God will switch and turn things around if I live rightly for Him. I'm going to start going to church more. I'm going to start reading my Bible. Uh, I'm going to start... They serve the Lord's Supper on Sunday morning. I'm going to start coming and taking that. Maybe that'll do some work in my life and I'll begin to experience the blessing of God. But then you turn around and don't look to Him in hope and faith and trust. Maybe you would say, Oh, well, I'm not trying to manipulate God with my actions or my works. Have you ever been praying for something? Things that have been going wrong in your life? Hardship and difficulty that you've been struggling with and facing, and you've been praying and pouring out and seeking God to work and move and change and to fix that, to heal you, to change that relationship, to get you out of the circumstances that you're in? And then he doesn't answer the prayer the way you wanted him to. Have you ever gotten angry at God? And then turn back around and say, God, why aren't you answering my prayer? I've been living holy life before you. I've been giving more in church these past six months. God, why is my marriage such a wreck? I waited to have sex until we were married. Why is our marriage in shambles? Why would you treat me like this when I'm doing these great works and acts for you? Does that not betray something of our heart that we can tend to sometimes think that we can manipulate God as if, if we live a certain way, he then is obligated to respond and work and move in our lives in a particular fashion? The covenant says no. We must realize and understand that everything that we receive is by grace that God is never uh, manipulated by our actions and our works. He works and moves in our lives because of his steadfast love, because of his covenant promises, because of his grace. And we are called to walk and trust and live for him, to live a holy and righteous life. Why? Not to get anything from him, but because of everything we've already received. He's given us His Son. And the way that we live reflects who He is to the nations. I want to live a holy life, not so that I can get something from God, but so that He gets glory in the world. And so that people come to know Him. Yet Israel has completely tossed this purpose away. They think that they are in control. They want to manipulate through their works, through their religious performance, God's pleasure, His movement, His work in their lives, despite how they're living. If you are here this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, a follower of Jesus, uh, you may have thought that that's what being a Christian is. Living a good life and doing certain works and actions So that God will then be pleased with you and then act and work on your behalf. But hopefully what you're seeing is that's not the case at all. In fact, the last part of this chapter communicates that even more. What does the defeat of the people of Israel communicate? Remember, we see that that defeat is mentioned in verse 2 and 3 when... 4,000 men of Israel die on the battlefield. But notice the interpretation in verse 3. Why has Yahweh defeated us today before the Philistines? Israel's defeat before the Philistines did not mean that the God of Israel lost. He was not weaker than the gods of the Philistines. Israel lost and was defeated because God defeated them. They understood and interpreted that rightly. That is true. Notice how the rest of the passage reinforces that. Remember the message that, that Samuel spoke last chapter to Eli about what was going to happen, about the destruction and the sword that was going to come upon the people of Israel and the high priestly family because of their disobedience and their rebellion? Look at how this is, this is highlighted and brought up. In verse 4, Hophni and Phineas are mentioned, that they are there. Then we then see in verse 11 that Hophni and Phineas, the narrator goes out of his way to show us that they died. Then in verse 17, it comes up again as they are mentioned, and their death again is reiterated, that they are dead. Again in verse 19, it tells it. Then as uh, Phineas's wife recounts what's going on, she also speaks about the death of her husband and of her father-in-law. You see, all that's going on and happening here isn't because God is weak. It's because God is judging His people. The defeat of Israel in this chapter shows us that God is displeased with the way that His people are responding. For God's people to discount His goodness and His grace for God's people to think that they could manipulate him through their actions, through their religious works. God says no. To, to, to proclaim me with your mouth and then I'll live a life that denies me, I am not pleased with that, God says. In fact, what we're seeing here is God beginning to prepare his people for the coming of the king through purification. Notice where God starts. In order to prepare the way for the king, he does not begin with the Philistines, the enemies of God's people. Where does he begin? With those who profess to be the people of God, but who are denying it with their actions and their words. In fact, if you want to later look at Psalm 78, this recounts and interprets what God is doing here Uh, In this time here at Shiloh, in verses 56 to 72 of Psalm 78, God talks about their rebellion, their hard-heartedness, their worshiping other gods, their failure to repent and honor Him. And God talks about how He's judging and punishing His people, but the end of the psalm gets to where it shows that He's preparing for the coming and the establishment of David's kingship purifying his people so that the king can come. In fact, we see throughout this passage that God is telling his people that I will judge my people and start among the people of God to prepare the way for my coming kingdom. In fact, the language that Phinehas's wife uses in verses 21 and 22, where she says the glory has departed from Israel. Another way that you could translate it, you could see it there in your uh, in the footnote of your pew Bibles. There is the glory of God has gone into exile. This is what God promises people in uh, Deuteronomy would happen if they rebelled against Him. Here we see a foreshadowing of it, except it's God's glory that's going into exile. Later, Jeremiah is going to pick up on this language in Jeremiah chapter seven, verses eight through fifteen. Where God brings up this instance of the people of God and their rebellion and their worshiping false gods and saying this is the same thing he's doing when the exile happens, except this time he sends his people out of the promised land and God's glory departs from them once again. John the Baptist does the same thing. What does he do? To come to prepare the way for the king, but he calls the people of God to repentance. He doesn't go to Rome. He goes to Jerusalem. And he calls the leaders of God's people and those who were who professed with their mouth that they're following God to turn their hearts to their covenant God who has redeemed and saved them. And Jesus, when he begins to proclaim the good news of the message of the kingdom, what does he say? What does he begin? His message is repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand you understand and see what that message of repentance is? It's just pointing us back to God's covenant promises. Look to me. Don't look to any other gods. Look to me and my gracious provision for you. I'm not expecting you to be perfect. You can't be. I will be perfect in your place. I will provide what you need. Don't look anywhere else. Don't look at yourself to perform. Look and hope and trust in Me. Turn from your sin. Turn from your performance. Turn from your self-righteousness. And hope and rest in your God who provides for you. Because the King is coming. That is true for us even now. We await the coming of Christ. And God is doing a work in His people even now through the communication of this passage to you this morning of a work of purification of warning and calling you and me to respond rightly to the privileges we have as God's covenant people. Will you hear the message of the ark? Will you hear the message of the defeat? Will you hear the message of the provision of Jesus on your behalf? The good news of the Gospel is that the God who dwells among you continues to come and call you to hope and rest and trust in Him because the King is coming. Should we not be ready? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank You uh, that You are the true and perfect King. We thank You that You are coming to establish Your kingdom. And we pray that as Your people, that we would always and only look and hope and trust in You. Not our religious performance, not anything that we've done, but only in Your perfect provision on our behalf. Prepare us for Your coming. May we live holy and righteous lives that You would be glorified. In Christ's name, amen.